0: Hi there! Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Laurie Dickmeyer. I just hi there. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Laurie Dickmeyer. I just finished speaking with Dr. Stephen R. Platt from the University of Massachusetts Amherst about his new book. Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age. It recently came out this year in 2018 with Alfred A. Knopf. His book explains how the first opium war between Great Britain and China came to be. Platt vividly describes the people, places, and events involved, from ill-fated British embassies to Beijing, powerful Qing emperors and officials, British citizens who endeavored to master the Chinese language, and gain increased access to markets, potential converts, and China beyond the port at Canton. In the process, he discovers moments when there was opportunity for understanding and cooperation rather than the final result of war. It was a pleasure to read his book and speak with him about it. We just scratched the surface, really. Uh, Please enjoy the interview and the book. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm one of the hosts for this channel, Lori Dickmeyer. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen R. Platt about his book, Imperial Twilight. Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Laurie.
0: Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could start us off just by introducing yourself a little bit, telling us about yourself.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I am a professor of Chinese history at UMass Amherst, and um, Prior to that, whew, uh, depends how far you want to go back, um, but I came to Chinese studies very late. I was a uh, math and then an English major in college and actually didn't start learning anything about China until after I graduated, when I went off to teach for two years in China. Um, that's when I started learning Chinese. That's when I started traveling around the country um, and got hooked on that and came back and eventually found my way to, uh, to getting a PhD in Chinese history. And lo and behold, here I am, um, back actually in the place where I grew up. I, I grew up in Northampton, Massachusetts, and that's where I live now, which has been really nice.
0: You have been on this podcast before. You spoke with Carla Nappi about your book, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, about the Taiping Civil War. Uh, and now with Imperial Twilight, you are talking about the time leading up to the first opium war. Uh, how did you come to write this book?
1: Um, I've been asked that before. And, and and like the most honest answer I can come up with is that by this point, after sort of years of research and writing and whatnot, I've completely forgotten why it is that I started working on this project. (laughs) I think by the time you come to the end, you know, you, you can no longer remember the beginnings really well. Um, but when I do try to sort of dig back and say, why did I pick this particular topic? Um, I think all of the books that I've read have linked to something previous. Um, My first book, which was my dissertation, was about reformers and revolutionaries in Hunan province. Um, And Hunan is where I had lived and taught in China. It was a part of China that I was really fascinated with. So there was the link between my post-college experience and my first book. Um, Then the book on the Taiping Rebellion, my last one, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, Um, That really came about from wanting to dig much deeper into understanding Zhang Guofan, the the Hunanese general who suppressed the Taiping. Um, He showed up in my first book sort of quickly in passing, um, where I talked a little bit about the Hunan army. But the Taiping book began really as wanting to understand much more deeply why the Hunan army succeeded. What did it do right? What was it exactly that Zhang Guofan was doing that attained this legendary status? So that was the connection there. Um, The connection from that book to this one has more to do with... um the issue of the British intervention in the Taiping Rebellion in in, in, Autumn, in the Heavenly Kingdom. Um, there were significant parts of that that were devoted to uh, trying to understand why the British, who had you know just fought two opium wars against the Qing Dynasty, uh, why they suddenly turned around and supported the dynasty against the Taiping rebels. And one of the things that came up as I was uh, looking through that, and trying to un- understand the rationales for the intervention, Was a large measure of guilt for the Opium War. Um, And there were sort of prominent British who argued that really the Taiping Rebellion was Britain's fault for having fought the Opium War. And the reasoning there went that by fighting the Opium War against uh, against the Qing Dynasty, um, Britain had destabilized the government of China and had made it possible for an insurrection like the Taiping to arise and and threaten to engulf the entire country. Um, so, again, by that, that sort of strange path of reasoning, um, those who followed that, the, the, the end point that they got to was since it's Great Britain's fault that the Taiping Rebellion occurred, it's therefore Britain's moral duty to help put it down. Um, and, it's, and because Britain had destabilized the government with its opium wars, therefore we must go in and help stabilize them again. It was sort of this weird um, sort of version of a humanitarian argument. In any case, I think that is what initially brought me back to the opium war era, um, trying to see how far back does that British guilt go? Um, you, know, as, you know, as I learned about the opium war as a student, um, you never really think twice about the motives of the British. And of course, they went charging on into China and forcing opium on the Chinese and fighting wars. That's what the British did. Um, and that's very much sort of a, a Chinese view of, of the British in the 19th century. And what I latched onto here, and which really became the reason why I decided to keep digging and work on this book, um, was finding just how incredibly controversial this really was in Britain at the time, Um, that there were very prominent voices of opposition to the war, of opposition to the opium trade. And a lot of the research for this book was trying to find out, well, if there were such strong moral arguments and if the opium war was clearly immoral in Britain's logic of the time, how did it happen? How did it go forward? How was it actually, uh, you know, how was it started? And then that, you know, you follow various threads and then it grows and it grows and snowballs. And then in the end, you can't really remember why it is you began. But I think that was actually the thread that got me started.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. You, you, touched upon a few points that you mentioned in your introduction about how the opium war uh, that happened in the mid-19th century uh, wasn't a large war particularly, but as you mentioned, it has significance beyond that particular three-year period. Um, And in kind of Chinese thinking, it has a large amount of symbolic importance uh, as the beginning of this century of humiliation uh, that often gets mentioned as well. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the opium war, China, China's current view of the opium war, the way that it's taught in textbooks and the way people in government talk about it um, really, and that's a 20th century, view of the opium war, that it was an imperial war fought to, you know, to humiliate China, to you know, bring China down. Um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, textbooks on, on modern Chinese history in China today, the, you know, the standard periodization is that modern China begins with the opium war. That is the moment when China is dragged kicking and screaming into the world of imperialism and will be victimized for a century until finally, you know, as the current narrative goes um until finally the communist power rises and uh, the communist party rises to power um the people's republic is founded japan is defeated all of those things are put behind and now it's china's duty to sort of build itself back to the the power that it once had before the opium war so it's this absolute watershed in modern chinese history as viewed in china Um, it's also a, it's also a watershed for Chinese foreign relations that, I mean, the opium war, again, while it wasn't a huge war and it, you know, it had, it couldn't hold a candle to something like the Taiping rebellion and how that affected China. Um, but the opium war did mark through the demarcation line or uh, really, it marks the beginning of the Western discovery that, as I wrote in the book, that you can get what you want from China through violence. Um, prior to the Opium War, it was generally it was, China was generally viewed as a strong, unified, powerful empire, um, and anyone who proposed, you know, sending in a gunship in order to force open a port um, was, you know, met with responses from their fellow countrymen that that would be suicidal. That Britain, you know that uh, China would just shut down our trade. We would lose our access to tea. How could that possibly gain anything? Um, And even on a more fundamental level, how can you send, as the British did, a small fleet of warships and a few thousand troops to make war on the largest empire in the world? This is an empire of 300 million people at the time. Um, You know, a third of the world lived in China. So the fact that the Opium War happens and is successful for the British sets an entirely new pattern for western chinese relations the french will pick up on that the japanese will pick up on it and this this is what continues to grow through the 19th century um, the you know the it's sort of the beginning of this era of gunboat diplomacy diplomacy of sort of this the bullying of china the using superior military force to advance trade there mm.
0: yeah uh, yeah i can definitely see that progression throughout the book so I'll be excited to discuss that further in a moment. I wonder if you could tell us a little about uh, the main figure of your prologue, who is this person named James Flint. Um, People may be a little bit more familiar with uh, the embassy of Lord McCartney to the Chinese, but perhaps a little less familiar with uh, this figure, James Flint.
1: Um, James Flint is this sort of heartbreaking uh, character who wound up being the, uh, yeah, he leads off the prologue. Um, He was was an an English orphan who had been carried to Canton by a ship's captain um, who left him there so that he could make something of himself by learning Chinese. Um, At the time, trade between Britain and China was very limited. Um, and there wasn't anybody on the British side who could speak Chinese. So the, the, interpreters for all of their negotiations of different kinds, um, were necessarily Chinese or Portuguese or some other nationality. And the British had always really, you know, they, they really wanted one of their own. And that's what James Flint be, became. Um, he was the first Englishman to learn Chinese as far as we know, um, he learned to read and write um, passably well. He still needed help from his teacher. And he shows up in there. I mean, any character has to represent more than just their own personal story. And he really sort of signifies the beginning of the so-called Canton era, this era from 1760 up until the Opium War when all of Brit- Britain's trade is formally restricted to the one port of Canton. Um, the reason he represents this is that it's, um, it's it was his Attempt to bring a petition up to the Chenlong Emperor in Beijing um, that sparks the sort of the beginning of that era. Um, the British had been able to trade in other ports in the past. This was being restricted. They were unhappy about it. Um, they wanted to complain to the emperor and Flint, because he was the one who could speak Chinese and could and could write in Chinese, um, was the one they sent north uh, with a petition asking the Chenlong Emperor, among other things, um, if he would allow the British to trade in other ports. Um, Long story short, the Chenlong Emperor does not approve of this. Um, Flint is punished for having sailed into ports where British ships were not allowed up in the north, and he winds up being jailed for three years. Um, And sort of, More to the point, his Chinese teacher, who is blamed for having helped him write this petition to the emperor, um, is beheaded for uh, essentially for for collaborating with a foreigner um, to break the law. So this it's the arrest and imprisonment of James Flint that begins this era of the formal complete closure of British trade to Canton. Um it also marks the beginning of an era when it's generally understood that it's illegal for Chinese to teach their language to foreigners and the and the learning of Chinese for the British seems an even more remote possibility. The East India Company members for the most part stopped trying to learn until until a new generation came along. And Flint himself um he turns out all right. Um, I, I did find after he gets you know, released from prison, he's thrown onto a British ship and told never to come back to China again. Um, but I, I did happen to vi- find a uh, reference to him in Benjamin Franklin's letters. Um, he shows up in the in the 1770s teaching Benjamin Franklin how to make tofu. So he's you know, he, he doesn't have such a bad life afterwards. Um, but again, it's it's just it's a little story about him at the beginning, and what it does is it sets the tone for the era that the book is really about, which is this long um, era of restricted trade and how the British try to get past that.
0: Uh, this might be a good time then to talk more about the the Canton system and what that really meant for British and other European, also American, traders who were going there to trade with the Chinese. Yeah, what would you what, what would you like me to talk about with regard? Uh, maybe to just briefly sketch... Uh, what that looked like for the British and and what were they hoping to achieve first of all by sending uh, James Flint up to Chenlan and then Lord McCartney, Lord Amherst, these other
1: people Yeah, folks. so um the the Canton system I mean, just in a, in a nutshell, it's um, during, during this era when British trade was restricted to Canton. Um, you know, U.S. trade was also restricted there, the, uh, the French, the Dutch. Uh, Russians could trade in the north. The Spanish had the right to trade at, at I think, Amoy, but they didn't really come around. Um, but for the British, this was really most important. Um, the East India Company traders, um, because up until 1834, the, East, the British East India Company had a, a monopoly on all British trade to China. Um, the members of the East India Company who were stationed in Canton lived in these beautiful buildings, um, these the, the so-called factory buildings in a little compound outside of the city. Um, these were homes for them while they were conducting trade. They generally couldn't live year round there. Um, But it's this the the little district there. It's called the factory district and factory here is from um, it's from a term for um, factor, meaning a trader. Um, So these are places that traders lived. They aren't places like the factories that we think of. They're not building things there. Um, But in any case, you have this this wonderful contrast between uh, these. British merchants who are living in incredibly luxurious quarters um, waited on hand and foot by Chinese servants um, making large amounts of money and retiring home to take seats in parliament and and buy country estates and things like that. Um, But at the same time, they have almost no rights in China. They're not supposed to go outside of this little canton, the little compound outside Canton. They're not supposed to go into the city itself. Um, they're not supposed to go to any other ports. They feel very, very, very limited there. And for generations, you have um, you have British merchants who dream of access to other ports. You know that if they could get access to the north, then they could sell so many more woolen goods and all these visions of the riches that they could that they could find if they could only get access elsewhere. So while the British are actually treated very well there on the whole, and they and their their commerce succeeds very well, um, it's not enough and they're always hoping for more. But generally speaking, the view of the government back home in Britain is they should be thankful for what they have. Um, you shouldn't, you, know, you shouldn't go messing around and trying to, to push against the rules there. Um, the reason why this is all so important is because the only place in the world that the British could get their tea at this time was from China. And the only place they could buy it was in Canton. And if the Canton trade got derailed, there goes Britain's entire source of tea, which matters not just for all of the people in Great Britain having their breakfast, but um, but it matters for the government because, you know, there are varying taxes on tea. But um, at its peak, the British government levies a 100 percent tax on tea imported from China, which becomes a significant part of its revenue stream. So the health of this trade at Canton from the 1760s all the way up to the 1840s um is very important in terms of Britain's national budget and in terms of sort of a generalized sense of national security that they need a good trade going on in China. So the tensions are between those British who say that this is a... Decent system. It has its problems, but we should put up with it because the benefits are enormous and we would stand to lose a lot if we tinker with it. And others who become more aggressive as the years go by, um, especially with Britain's rise, military rise through the Napoleonic Wars, um, coming out of the Napoleonic Wars as the preeminent um, you know, naval power in the world. And the arrogance that goes along with that, that who are the Chinese to deny us further trade? Don't they realize how powerful we are? It's etc., etc. So prior to the Opium War, those issues really come to the fore twice um, in two different embassies that the British send to to China. Uh, The first, which you've mentioned, is uh, Lord McCartney, who comes in 1792. And everyone who takes intro to modern China learns about the McCartney mission and how he came and sort of refused to kowtow to the emperor and the embassy all fell apart and he was sent packing with no concessions at all. Um, a few things to keep in mind about that. Um, McCartney had a very long list of demands. Um, he was asking for access to other ports for the British. He was asking for um, offshore islands that the British could use as warehouses on uh, the right to station an ambassador at the capital, um, all kinds of things that the Qianlong Emperor was not likely to grant, no matter how, how much McCartney had kowtowed before him. So that, that mission was a failure. Importantly, though, nothing came of it. Um, Though it was a failure, there was no damage to the trade at Canton, which went right along as it had been before. And the lesson learned for the British was that, especially the lesson learned for the East India Company was it's better not to send diplomats to to Beijing, Um, that you risk angering the emperor or annoying him, you put the trade at risk. Um, and there probably isn't anything to be gained from it. So you enter back into another era of relatively quiet trade on the, on the standard model. Um, I should mention also that in sending McCartney to China, the East India Company directors were not enthusiastic about it at all. Um, they remembered James Flint and what had happened to him when he asked for further, further ports to be opened. Uh, the people in Britain who really wanted McCartney to go were a separate group, um, the manufacturers in northern England. Um, who were hoping for markets for their textile goods in China to be opened. The East India company was less concerned with that. So you, what you, you, the manufacturers who are separate from the China trade in England, they're the ones who really push for this mission to go through. And again, nothing comes of it. The other mission, which comes up is maybe about a third of the way through my book, um, is the much lesser known Amherst mission um, of 1816. That one comes on the heels of Britain's victory in the Napoleonic Wars, um, and the defeat of Napoleon and Amherst comes to China with a very, very scaled down list of requests. Um, he doesn't ask for, um, he doesn't ask for opened ports. He doesn't ask for you know, islands off of the coast. Um, Basically, he just wants a better means of communication for the traders in Canton to um, to talk to high-ranking ministers in Beijing to sort of get outside the orbit of the officials who were stationed down in Canton. Um, and he hoped for the right for the British to trade um, more freely at Canton. Um, the there was a monopoly on the Chinese side of a, of, a, of a limited number of Chinese merchant guilds that they could trade with, and they wanted to try to work with more. I mean, Canton was a huge trading center; it was a massive. On- Entrepôt for South China. And the British were limited to generally about 12 uh, merchant families that they were able to to trade with there. Um, So Amherst had much more modest demands, but he was even more arrogant than McCartney because he was more than anything. he was coming there to China in order to impress upon the emperor that with the defeat of Napoleon, um, Great Britain was now the preeminent naval power in the world. And the hope was that China's recognition of that would lead towards an opening of trade and an expansion of relations. That one falls apart even more horribly than the McCartney mission. Amherst never even makes it into his audience. Fights break out. Um, his ship you know, independently starts shelling forts down in South China. Um, it's an, really one of the most disastrous diplomatic embassies you can imagine. Um, but that's it. No more attempts at direct diplomacy with Beijing um, until the opium war. Mm. So.
0: Right. I guess the, the next closest thing would be uh, the incident with Lord Napier, uh, later on uh, in Canton, right? When he tries to establish, establish communication.
1: Oh, Lord. Yeah. Oh, Lord <laughs> Napier. Um, yeah. Um, so Lord Napier, um, as I said, the East India company had a monopoly on the China trade. So uh, a monopoly granted by the British government um, up until 1834 is when it ended in Canton. 1833 is when it's revoked. The end of the East India Company's monopoly. Um, first of all, well, the reason for the end of the East Asian, I mean, sorry, the uh, East India Company's uh, monopoly um, is the rise of free trade in Great Britain um, and free trade interests, who became much more um, politically significant in the 1830s um, loathed the East India company. And they believed that if there were free British trade with China, if any British firm that had a ship could enter into the trade, that of course, Britain's overall trade with China would expand and grow and become more prosperous. Um, so they succeeded in the early 1830s, uh, the East India company lost its charter, um, to, to monopolize the trade in China. And in the aftermath of that, um, you start having you know, merchants with no, who have no experience with China, um, this relationship really, I mean, the whole relationship between China and great Britain, with the exception of those two very quick embassies under McCartney and Amherst. Otherwise relations always took place between merchants, the merchants of the East India company and the Hong merchants in Canton. They were the ones who had the monopoly on the Chinese side and, All of the trust and the familiarity that was built into that gets uprooted on the British side with the end of the East India Company's role in Canton. After 1834, the East India Company isn't even allowed to trade there anymore. Basically, they become effectively a bank um, uh, at Canton. That's their main role after 1834. So as you have this flood of new british merchants coming to trade in canton who are not organized in any way they're not answerable to anyone the way that the east india company merchants were all answerable to the to the directors back in london um the, the British foreign minister, uh, Palmerston, um, decides that they need to send a British official um, to manage these merchants on the ground. And this post, it's the chief superintendent of trade. It's a brand new post with very, very vague description. And the person who winds up getting it um, is, is this man, William John Napier, the ninth Lord Napier. Um, a, an illustrious pedigree, he, you know, he's a Scottish Lord descended from the man who discovered logarithms. He's a close personal friend of King William. They had served together back, back when the King was a prince. Um, so he's very well connected, but he knows nothing at all about China whatsoever, um, and he's sent over there and gets himself almost immediately into a huge pickle where he starts demanding that he should be allowed to communicate directly with the uh, with the government officials at Canton, um, that the governor general of the province he should be able to address directly. This has never been allowed before. The East India Company merchants were supposed to talk to their counterparts, the home merchants, who would then represent them to the officials. Um, so Napier comes full of vim and vigor, declaring that he's a representative of the king of England and he shouldn't have to be treated like some lowly merchant. Um, anyhow, gets himself into this horrible kerfuffle with the governor general. Um, this The trading compound gets shut down. Trade gets shut down. Napier calls in gunboats. Nothing comes of it. Um, and eventually he's forced to give up and he or has to sail back down to Macau where he promptly dies um so that's sort of the brief story of lord napier um one of the i mean one of the wonderful things um in terms of doing the research for this book um, i had always thought of napier as probably being really mostly a you know sort of a victim of circumstance that he was out of his league he didn't really understand what he was getting into um he was sort of caught up in events that he didn't really have much control over that's that's sort of how i saw him initially um i got to read his diaries um and his and his notebooks from his journey over to china um they're still held by his by his uh descendant the current lord napier um, who let me look at these diaries and notebooks And looking at his um, looking at his notebooks from the journey to China when he's first sent there, um, as he's reading through the various works about China that have been written in England over the years and writing his responses to them, um, it turns out that Lord Napier was absolutely the author of his own fate. I mean, he's writing these just amazing things in his notebook um, to himself um, about, you know, he's not even halfway to China and he's already decided that what China really needs is a war. And he's musing on like how easy it would be. I mean, he, incidentally, his background is in the Navy. Um, musing about how easy it would be to station a fleet of warships off the coast and shut down the coastal trade of China and bring the government to its knees. And he's has this fantasy of the British making an alliance with the merchants of China who want their trade um, and overthrowing the Manchus of the Qing dynasty, driving them out um, and establishing a new Chinese uh, um, emperor on the throne who would be answerable to British power behind the scenes. So Napier entirely caused his own downfall. Um, already before he even got to China, he was having fantasies about turning China into another, another India, um, put a King on the throne who's answerable to us, who we can manipulate. Um, and then we will control China effectively. It didn't work for him at all. Um, as, as you will find out in the
0: book. Yeah. Something else that I noticed, uh, going forward in your book is that, uh, you also trace the history of how various Chinese intellectuals and officials thought about uh, the British. So for instance, you show us moments of potential or possible cooperation, um, other times, you know, equally kind of close-minded views about how trade worked and so on. So for instance, you have examples like Hokwa that uh, demonstrate, you know a positive kind of form of cooperation with Americans and with the British and then you have scholars um both who are supportive of opium and trade and others who would prefer to kick out foreigners entirely out of canton and and elsewhere
1: yeah this i again one of my one of the impulses in doing the research for this book was to yeah i mean it's It's a huge era and there are oceans and oceans of sources to work through. Um, But one thing that I tried to bring into the book were some of the debates amongst Chinese scholars about um, how China should deal with foreign trade, how it should deal with foreigners, um, how it should deal with the opium trade. Because these were not always seen as being part and parcel with one another. Um, After the war, they're conflated together where opium is seen as a purely foreign problem for China. Um, as the opium war is remembered in China. It's the war, you know, that the British came and forced opium down the throats of the Chinese. And when the Chinese tried to stop them, then the British went to war. The reality is that there was, you know, very close cooperation between British and criminal Chinese prior to the war, that the British couldn't force opium down anyone's throat, they couldn't get into the country. Um, all they could do is get their opium to the coast. And there were huge numbers of Chinese ready there, ready to buy from them. I mean, one official had written an account sort of lamenting um, in the 1830s that when a British ship materialized offshore, instead of finding naval patrols, they would find thousands of people standing on the shore whistling at them, hoping that they would drop anchor and sell them their opium. So prior to the opium war, um, the debates on opium largely are domestic debates, um, that why are Chinese using opium, why are officials corrupt in selling it, um, why are they accepting bribes, why is it infiltrating the the army. It's really only with the opium war itself and really with the particular views of Lin Zexu, who very faithfully is appointed um, to to shut down the opium trade at Canton. It's with him that it shifts from being really a domestic uh, problem um, with potentially domestic solutions of various crackdowns on traders and traffickers within China Um, with him, it shifts to become really a fully international incident. there are scholars all along who argue that the British are to blame for this. There are others. There are other Chinese scholars who say, well, the British have been coming for decades. Um, they didn't used to sell opium. They've been selling, uh, you know, they've been selling us textiles forever. So clearly, their goal isn't just to come and sell opium. And then those scholars say, well, and and also if we didn't smoke opium, they wouldn't be selling it to us. Um, so there were there were very vibrant, very thoughtful um, debates about how to you know how to address this scourge of spreading opium in china um, how it's related to foreign trade, whether foreign trade is beneficial to China or not. Um, from at least the 1820s, you have, um, you have prominent thinkers arguing that, you know, it, you know, opium aside, like all foreign trade is bad for China because silver is going out of the country to buy things um, that should be kept in the country. And that if the Chinese consumers are being tempted by various foreign luxuries, certain fabrics or special clocks or things like that, um, that these are all unnecessary. Um, and China would be better off without them so you have a very a very strongly nativist school that's generally opposed to foreign trade just in and of itself um, then there are others who argue about ways in which it's beneficial um there are one of the things that I've also tried to emphasize um and in the course of writing this book is there's this really longstanding misconception that still gets trotted out quite a bit um that the Chinese of the early nineteenth century were completely anti-foreign, totally uninterested in the outside world, um, and that they were completely unaware of the rise of British power. And that's the sort of the cliche about the early 19th century Chinese, who then, as that version of the story goes, were then shocked into the awareness of the West because of the opium war. And that's, that's really like, that's a lot of bunk. Um, Obviously, there were Chinese who didn't care at all about anything going on outside of China. But if you look at the writings of some of these coastal officials and and scholars who lived along the coast. Um, First of all, those who live uh, those who have lived or worked in Canton are fully aware of how powerful Britain's Navy is um, they have seen these warships they had some of them have been on them um, others have written about them for others to read about the coastal officials generally speaking were well aware by the time of the opium war that China couldn't really resist um, an, an attack from the British and so the best thing to do was to avoid it and the advice from people like that with regard to the opium crackdown was keep it as a domestic affair crack down on the domestic dealers and traffickers crack down on domestic users Um, if you draw the british into it then you risk provoking them and that that complicates things too much Um, with regard to um, foreign products, urban Chinese were very much interested in foreign products. Um, you know, It wasn't just opium that the British were selling or the, Ameri- the British and the Americans and others were selling. They were also selling fabrics. They were selling luxury items. They were selling seal skins um, that there were various fashions um in urban china that were best satisfied by by foreign products it, you know and at times it was referred to as sort of the foreign fever um, and there were complaints from the more conservative scholars that again wealthy urban chinese and this is a time of great prosperity in china on um, that wealthy urban chinese were you know they were buying all kinds of useless things that were being imported to canton really sort of to show them off or you know because it gave them status um, even the East India company's opium, um, there, you know, the opium from India that was being sold by the East India company, the, uh, the Patna opium commanded a higher price because it had the brand of the East India company on it because it was foreign and it was seen as much better than domestically produced opium or opium from opium from Turkey or other places. Um, so there was this brand consciousness. Um, and I think the final thing, the final thing there is that, um, we also tend to project backwards a view of opium from the 20th century when there was widespread addiction at all levels of society, cheap, plentiful opium everywhere. You know, these, you know, these photographs of emaciated opium users, these, you know, these were the problem of the 20th century. The opium problem as it existed prior to the opium war was still really an elite phenomenon. That opium was still very expensive and compared to the 20th century, not very much was actually being imported. That there would be, you know, by the 20th century, after the opium wars have been fought and the markets have been opened, and it comes really flooding in. Um, you know, you have several times as much opium being imported from India, and then you have ten times that being grown and produced within China. So the opium problem in China prior to the opium war, and this is one of the reasons why these sort of scholarly debates are important, it's because it's other scholars who are mostly using it, um, that one of the reasons the government becomes so alarmed about the opium problem is because some of the biggest users of it um, work in government. It's the little underlings at the various government offices who are horrifically corrupt in this period, um, who are heavy users of opium um and that leads into the debates which um which uh which fortunately generally managed to make it into the modern china uh classes in the US um these debates in the 1830s over whether china should legalize opium or suppress it and again very interesting arguments advanced on both sides about whether you know in you know resonant throughout history you know, resonant today in the united states about is it better to regulate it and control it and keep the economic, you know, keep the price controlled and keep silver from going out of the country by trading opium for tea openly at Canton, or is it really, or is it best for the country to give a, you know, a 100% crackdown and shut down the trade for good. And there are absolute extremes in these debates. Um, You have, you know, you have the advocates of legalization saying, you know, Clearly, trying to crack down has not worked at all. Uh, making harsher laws just gives corrupt officials more chance to be corrupt to threaten people under them, um, and and you know. Furthermore, so we should you know bring it into the country openly and try to remove corruption from that picture. On the other side, you have people like Linza Shu, who is. You know, widely remembered for standing up to the British at Canton, demanding that the British hand over all of their opium for it to be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, he's rightly remembered for all of that. Um, what's not generally remembered about Lin Zexu is the domestic side um, of his of his crackdown, um, where he believed and he, I mean, he advocated for you know, really the the strongest line of suppression which um, was that everyone should be given a year um, in China to stop using opium. And they would get help, they would have, you know, there would be hospitals for them, medicine would be available, you know, moral persuasion to help them get off of the drug. Um, And then after that one-year grace period was up, anyone left in in China who still smoked opium should be executed. Um, So that ruthlessness on his side, I think, generally gets forgotten. That um, It was never carried out. It would have been impossible to carry out at any rate. Um, But he was was of the camp that believed that anyone who really couldn't get off opium just had no place in society and should just be killed.
0: Another figure that you spend a bit of time with is... uh, Charles Elliott, uh, who is basically at the center of the beginning of the Opium War. And he seems like a, a really interesting figure in some ways, quite willing to cooperate uh, with the Chinese, but then seems a little unhinged towards the end of the story that you present. I wonder if you could talk about him a little bit. Yeah, poor
1: Charles Elliot. I mean, the Opium War is his fault. There's really no way around that. Um, the he was the he was uh, a successor to lord napier so he was a later superintendent um he had actually come along with napier to china as, in a very very low position and managed to rise up to be the, to be eventually um the the leading the lead british superintendent in china um charles elliot was um he had no experience in China prior to being sent there. He did incidentally have um, experience with uh, with slavery. He had been the the protector of slaves in British Guiana, um, which and had contributed to the to the abolition of slavery um, in British territories. Um, so he sort of has that background when he comes to China. And the thing that he did, does which is why he is the reason for the Opium War is um well first of all he's he's very high strung um he's given to moments of panic uh there there's an American merchant Robert Forbes who refers to them as as uh, Eliot's mad freaks um that he has these moments where he just completely loses control and he was very very anxious about his role. Um, as the go between between the British merchants and the Chinese. He tried to be very respectful towards Chinese officials. Um, He tried to pursue a a sort of a peaceful cooperative policy, the very opposite of Napier. And he was quite, he was quite open about that, that he wanted to be the opposite of Lord Napier. Um, But at the same time, he had no power at all over the British merchants. Um, this was one of the problems on the British side that they had this superintendent who was supposed to be supervising these free traders, but he had no legal authority over them at all. Um, they were in China, so it was China's legal territory, um, and while Charles Eliot was himself morally opposed to the opium, war, the opium trade, um, his, you know, his highest duty, as he saw, was to protect the lives and the well-being of the British that he was supposedly supervising. So when Lin Zexu comes down to, to Canton and demands that the British hand over all of their opium, it's Charles Eliot who gets into the middle here. And he gets it into his head that Lin shoe is going to essentially start cutting the heads off of the British in Canton. You know, that's very likely not going to happen at all. There's no precedent for that. Um, you know, the, 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 the strongest precedent they have is uh, for punishment, direct punishment of a foreigner is you know, people who have committed murder. Um, and this is not something that's happened. This is not something that's happened here. So Elliot gets it into his head that the British, if they don't hand over all of their opium, um, are going to be are going to be rounded up and, and executed and he will be blamed for it. So if Charles Elliot had not gotten involved, um, then when Zexu made his demands about the opium that it be handed over, basically the British traders just yawned and, and decided to just wait it out. Um, Their opium wasn't in Canton, it was on ships off the coast. They readily scrambled them to other ports in different countries where they could be out of reach of the Chinese government. And as they looked, you know, forward to a showdown with Lin shoe, basically as they saw it, you know, the precedents that they had seen is that trade might be shut down for a while, but it would eventually be reopened. There would be some sort of a backdoor channel that would that would open things up again. Uh, you know, Linz's issue might just give up. None of them really seriously believed that he was going to round them up and execute them. <clears throat> Um, Elliot, however, took it in his head that they had better hand over that opium or something terrible would happen. So it's Charles Elliot who makes them give all of their opium to Lin Shu. And the only way that he manages to do this is by buying it from them. And so in the name of Queen Victoria, he buys all of the opium, of, of, uh, all of the opium in British hands and hands it all over to Lin Shu, signing these promissory notes. Then they actually become a, a, a kind of currency in India, um, promissory notes promising that the British government will pay back these merchants, the full market value of the opium that was taken from them. And it's those promises which he sees as the only way of sort of de-escalating the situation. Um, those promises lead to immediate lobbying of the government back in Great Britain um, to pay the opium traders for two million pounds worth of opium that has now been bought by the British government and has been destroyed by Lin Zexu. And I mean, in the most basic form, the thing that prompts the government ultimately to send a war fleet is the fact that they can't pay back this money to their own merchants. And so they determine that they're going to make China pay it back. Um, it's a bizarre, bizarre move, but one, but something that does actually make it make sense in the logic of its own time. Um, that again, that I found when I was doing the research here, um, really links back to Charles Eliot's previous experience with slavery. Um, and with abolition and with specifically how the British government abolished slavery because just a few years, uh, before the opium crisis at Canton, um, the British government had abolished slavery by raising a massive compensation fund, 20 million pounds, um, 10 times the value of the opium that was at issue in China, which they used to pay back all of the British slave owners for losing their quote-unquote property by by allowing their slaves to become free. And this was a gradual process. But the, the logic from the Britain that Charles Eliot came from was that no matter how abhorrent a particular trade might be, Still, those who had taken part in it had a right to their capital and they had a right to compensation. Um, and in light of that, then it makes sense why Charles Eliot signed all these promissory notes. He himself was against the opium trade. He, himself, he hoped that this that this whole event would mark the end of it. But as with the slave owners, he believed the only way to get the British merchants out of it was to pay them for their losses, for their investments. Um, and so as many saw it at the time, um, Charles Eliot, I mean, he played his own cards close, but as others saw it at the time, Charles Eliot's plan apparently, was to follow the model of the abolition of slavery, and that if the government would pay back these merchants for the cost of their opium, then the trade could be ended, there could be peace with China, they could resume the normal trade once again, and obviously that didn't happen at all, it turned into a war that exploded into bigger, larger things, the opium trade went right on with, if nothing, it was very temporarily interrupted, and then it took off with very, very few restrictions afterwards. Um, one of the great ironies of the Opium War, though, is that you know the treaty that ended it did not legalize opium. Um, that the British had it within their power to demand that China follow the, the the arguments of the legalists and legalize the trade, but they didn't. And this is partly because the last thing the major opium traders wanted was the legalization of their trade. They had they were making a fortune as smugglers, and they had these you know networks of Chinese contacts to buy from them. And if they faced open, open, fair, legal competition at Canton, they would lose all of those advantages. So it continues as a smuggling trade, um, and continues as this horrific blight on the honor of Britain in the to- in, in that era. Um, and then on we go into the modern age.
0: Right, and uh, you also mentioned in your book that uh, the Emperor Daoguan, uh Daoguan Emperor, blamed Lin Zexu, also. Uh, for this war. Um, did you get a sense of uh, how more broadly officials and the Chinese, um, how they felt about the war and who they perhaps blamed for the conflict?
1: Um, my, I didn't go very widely on that, um, partly because the book really ends with the opium war and, and, and it, it only addresses the aftermath very briefly. Um, but you know, it's it's the view of Wei Yuan who had worked with Lin Zexu and was generally sympathetic to him. Who wrote really the major account of of the of the dynasty's military affairs in that era, um, the geographer Wei Yuan. Um, his view was that Lin Zexu's really, I mean, he saw various faults with Lin Zexu, but the main one was the uh, was you know the the confiscating and destruction of the opium. Um, that it, and as with others who had advised Lin issue prior to the war, that if the, if the crackdown had been focused just on the Chinese at Canton, um, that they could have effectively shut down this trade without creating an international incident out of it. And this was incidentally something that the, that the British opium merchants were afraid of. I'm looking through the correspondence of Jardine and Matheson around the time of the war. It looked like the opium trade might be done for, um, and that they were going to be stuck with these ships full of uh, opium that was given to them on consignment that wouldn't be sellable. Um, they were going to have to look for other products um, that they were going to somehow make make their way because there was no way that they could imagine forcing a market for this good if China stopped selling it. So Lin Zexu gets blamed. Um, there's no evidence that the Daoguang Emperor told Lin Zexu to involve the foreigners, um, that he was just supposed to crack down. Um, the Emperor himself was quite surprised by the British response, which wasn't something that he had expected. And yeah, Lin Zexu winds up getting scapegoated uh, for the war. Not scapegoated horribly. I mean, his, his exile is commuted. He wants ends up, um, you know, playing a role later on. But the, the, the enduring, uh, vision of Lin Zexu in China's history, this is sort of a, Lin Zexu who there's a statue of him in New York, Chinatown with, with a plaque that says the pioneer of the war on drugs of so this upright, official, uncompromising, standing up for Britain against the, uh, I mean, standing up for China against the British in his own time, once the war broke out, he was generally blamed for having caused a, a very destructive and very unnecessary war um, There were ways around around the problem without sparking a national war um and there and frankly, there would have you know Following, following a different pathway, there were realistic ways in which the opium trade could have been brought to heel, um, could have been reduced um, without anything that would justify in Great Britain coming to war. And, and in terms of that, um, nobody in Great Britain argued that Britain should, that, that Britain should go to war over opium. You know, absolutely not. And the opponents of the war were the ones who called it the opium war, who declared that this was the greatest disgrace that the British had ever cast upon themselves. Um, you know, that they were, you know, every bit of moral authority they ever had was going out the window because they were going to war in favor of, of drug dealers. The proponents of the war and those who finally who managed to push it through focused exclusively on Elliot's reports and on the threats to the Chinese, to the British merchants there, especially singling out merchants who hadn't been part of the opium trade. And their take on it was that you know, violence was being threatened to British traders, some of whom were perfectly honest and up and upright and weren't taking part in the opium trade. And that kind of an atrocity couldn't be tolerated by a country such as Britain, and they had to go and teach China a lesson. Along the way, it gets turned into this, it gets transformed into a trade war that suddenly becomes about opening ports and forcing these various concessions from China. Charles Elliot, incidentally, did not support those. Um, his view was that you know, China should ultimately have to pay back for the opium that it had destroyed um, and that it should give the British somewhere that they could reside um, where they would be not subject to the whims of officials who might be sent to Canton. And what he got was Hong Kong. But Elliot got Hong Kong not as a colony, but as a place for British residents where it would still be part of China. I mean, the the, the details are murky um, in term in what he sent back to Palmerston. Um, but it's clear that there would still be a Chinese uh, customs house on Hong Kong, um, that it wasn't going to be something that the British held and governed themselves. It would be more like what Macau was for the Portuguese. Um, and Charles Eliot, he, he gets called back home when he won't push for Palmerston's desired terms, um, which include things like opening ports. Um, and ultimately he winds up as a critic of the war and sort of to his dying day. He, he maintains that the wider war wasn't necessary and that Britain took more than it should have and that it wasn't justified in it. Um, one of the most wonderful th- documents that I found that I was not ever able to use in the book itself. Um, and which sort of ties it together with my previous book Um, The typing book, uh, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, I wrote about the Second Opium War, the Arrow War, and the destruction of the Summer Palace, um, which was led by Lord Elgin. Um, He was the the British leader of the armed forces that that destroyed the Imperial Palace outside Beijing. Absolutely notorious figure. Um, His father was the Lord Elgin who took the marbles um, from Greece and brought them back to Britain. So, you know, not a great family, but um, when I was uh, when I was doing research at the National Library of Scotland, where they have Charles Eliot's papers, um, there was an account in there that Charles Eliot had written down of a meeting. At a party, it must have been in the 1860s uh, between Charles Elliot and Lord Elgin, who like met in person at one point. Um, so you have you know the man who started the first Opium War and the man who concluded the second Opium War in conversation. And even at that point, um, the main gist of Elliot's view is he insists to Lord Elgin that like none of this should have happened. And back at, in the in the first Opium War, all we needed was a trading site on on Hong Kong, and by demanding all this other stuff, that's what's led. To this horrible tragedy that we have right now, so to his dying day, Charles Eliot maintained that if that the war that happened should have been extremely limited and should not have involved the expansion of trade or all of these things that that British merchants had desired but had no uh, but had no legitimacy in demanding
0: wow that that's an interesting document to hear about. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I think we have taken up. Uh, A lot of your time, you've been generous with us. So I'd like to wrap up by asking you, uh, what research are you working on now? Um, Right now, I'm
1: starting research um, in the World War II era um, about a U.S. Marines officer named Evans Carlson who um who embedded himself with the Eighth Route Army with the communists in North China in the late 1930s um sort of on a personal mission from from president roosevelt um he traveled several thousand miles overland through japanese occupied north china um with uh, with a unit of the eighth route army um became extremely enamored of the communists in China, especially Judah, um, as a military man, he deeply admired Judah as a military commander. Um, and was especially taken with how successful the communists appeared to be against the Japanese occupiers. Um, he winds up mattering in the larger sphere, um, because he comes out of that in, out of that experience in, in 1939, um, being, being firmly convinced that a war is coming between Japan and the United States. Um, He resigns from the Marines so that he can speak freely and write books in the U S about the coming threat of China, um, about the promise of the communists. I'm sorry, the coming threat from Japan about the promise of the communists as, as, as allies. Um, And then along comes Pearl Harbor and he gains um, astounding fame by founding the, first uh commando unit of us military history the uh, the the second Marine Raiders battalion which became legendary there was a Hollywood film about them in 1943 um, they they led the first um, successful the first successfully completed missions in the Pacific in World War II um, and became famous. They're known as Carlson's Raiders, but he became this huge war hero in the United States. Um, and the wonderful thing about him is that his Raiders battalion was very deliberately and carefully modeled on the communists in China. I mean, he even had political indoctrination sessions where they would talk about their, their hopes for the future of American society and egalitarianism. Um, he trained them in the, in the guerrilla, the methods of guerrilla warfare that he had learned from the Chinese communists. Um, And of course he's going to be destroyed in the McCarthy era for this. He doesn't live to see it, but his name will be dragged through the mud and he's forgotten in the end. Um, But I've started doing research on him just as uh, he, he fascinates me as a character and it's an interesting way of getting a, 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 Getting at um, the sort of the the, the transfer of, of, of military ideology, um, the just the fact that the roots of, of American special forces lie in the Chinese communists is again that's I mean, that's a story that that I think is is going to be a fun one to work with, um, and it also opens up um, a, a new angle on the on the old question of, you know, the lost chances for alliance with China, the lost chance in China, however you want to who lost China, all that kind of thing. Um Carlson I find a very interesting figure to work with in terms of the McCarthy era um, just because a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the prominent Americans who were tarnished for their admiration of the communists in China were themselves sort of you know, you know critics or leftists or pacifists um, journalists and whatnot um, but the fact that this highly dedicated dedicated um, this highly decorated, uh, war hero. One of the most highly decorated, uh, officers of his time, um, was similarly dragged through the mud. He, I think this will be a very different, uh, version of that old story.
0: Wow. That sounds like a great project. Uh, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it and goodbye. Oh,
1: thanks so much. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Lori Dickmeyer. Thank you for listening.